Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 171 of the Lawyerist podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Karin Conroy about how to audit your law firm website. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Spotlight Branding, and New Law Business Model. We appreciate their support, and we will tell you more about them later in the show. So, Sam, it's very exciting that this week, at least as we're recording it, is the launch of our new Lawyerist Lab program, and we've got dozens of new what are we calling them? Labbers? I think labbers, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. About I don't think that. we have a comfortable nickname Lawyerist yet. lab participants. <laughs> I wanted lab rats, but lab rats. That doesn't <laughs> that doesn't sound supportive. No. We have dozens of new lawyerist lab members who are engaging with our team to help them grow their practice and improve their scores on the small firm scorecard. This week they're spending their time focused on some goal setting and planning work, and it's really exciting to see their responses and input pouring in. Yeah, this is something we've been wanting to do and looking forward to for a long time, and it's so cool to see it launch. Stephanie Everett has done an enormous amount of work in a pretty short amount of time to get this off the ground. It's exciting to see her begin to help this community move forward. And if you can think of a better name for someone who is a member of the Lawyerist Lab, please shoot us an email and let us know because Labbers is just not satisfying me. Lab Rats is not it either. And Lab Rats is not it. <laughs> so I've got a brief conversation with Scott Clayson from TimeSolve, and then we'll jump into my conversation with Karin. Hi, this is Scott Clayson. I'm the Director of Marketing at TimeSolve. We are a time and billing and practice management solution. Been around since 1999. We we're actually developed by Thomson Reuters and it became a privately held company in 2006. And uh, we're very passionate about providing lawyers and law firms with the tools to make them more efficient in doing the things that they like doing the least, which is tracking their time and sending out their invoices. Thanks for being with us today, Scott. And we are going to talk briefly about some ways to increase your billables. And uh, you've got a white paper at the end, so listen for that URL. But let's start out. What's the first thing firms should do if they're trying to increase their billable hour time? The number one thing they should do out of the gate is actually create a documented time tracking policy. And you don't have to have it perfect right out of the gate. You could handwrite it. You could do it on just something simple on one page on Microsoft Word. But write down what the policies are going to be and how your firm is going to go about tracking their time. And once you have it written down, it becomes real. And then, of course, it has to be the enforcement of that and making sure that everyone is following the policies that you've documented. And there's clear expectations. More than anything, it's about creating those expectations for the lawyers in your firm how are we going to track time? What are the mechanisms and so on? And I suppose ideally get their buy-in so that if you need to discipline somebody on it, you can say, look, you agreed to this. <laughs> Here right, we go. Right. So. Yeah. You know, any well-managed firm is, is going to, the, all the stakeholders are going to be part of that process in creating the time tracking policy. It can't just be passed down down from the high mountains of the senior partners. Right. So what's number two? <laughs> so one of the things we really think should be in place in a time tracking policy is the idea of closing out your time entries every week. By that, I mean, have it in place, and hopefully your time tracking software can do this, and, and time solve you can. 
having in place where your timekeepers cannot enter any entries from whatever date you want to choose. So our recommendation is do it weekly. Have the person in charge of the billing in your organizations, you know, come in here on Monday morning and say lawyers cannot put in or timekeepers can't put in any time from April 15th and previous. So that really incentivizes people to make sure they have all their time entries in on the day they do the work. And that's a real key part of the policy is that put the time entries in when you're doing it. Don't go ahead and, and say, oh, I'll just do it a few weeks later, or a few days later, do it at that day. And if you have a time entry closeout policy, they'll be, you know, and they can't do it. <laughs> they, you know, they don't want to make that walk ashamed of the billing person saying, I need to put a time entry in from last Tuesday because I forgot. Right. So that's that's a, a, an important rule, I think, part of this policy. I like that because it's something that a lot of people aren't currently doing. And it's one of those like hard incentives. Uh, get your time in. All right. Give us number three. So uh, another one is the idea of capture all time that you are you know, spending, not just billable time. It's one thing to, to look at the end of the day and say, oh, I got six hours of billable time or four hours of billable time. Well, what exactly were you doing with that other four hours, three hours, or whatever it might be? So it is the idea of tracking the non-billable time so that everybody at the firm can take a look and say, how are we allocating our resources? You might have been spending that other four non-billable hours doing something very important, but was that something that could have been done by somebody who doesn't charge by the hour? Um, maybe it's a para, maybe it's a business manager. You were spending time purchasing you know, a copier for the firm. Well, that time could be spent by somebody else, so you could be spending more time billing hours. So if you track that non-billable time, you'll have a better sense of where to shift resources within your firm. But you can't do that if you don't know what's happening on the non-billable time. That's one of Mary Jetton's big things. And we've had her on the podcast talk about this before. Know where you spend your time. Even if you're a full flat fee firm and you never bill hourly rates, it still is helpful to know where you're spending your time. So if you want four more tips on how to recover more billable time, you can go to go.timesolve.com slash increase time. That's go.timesolve, and timesolve is spelled exactly as it sounds like it would be spelled, but drop the E off the end. So go.timesolve.com slash increase time, all one word. Thanks so much for being with us today, Scott. Thanks, Sam. I appreciate it. Hi, I'm Karen Conroy, and I'm the founder and creative director of Conroy Creative Council. We offer smart websites for law firms. Formerly known as Conroy Consults, yes? Yes. <laughs> we have known each other for a very long time. I was recently trying to figure out how long that has been. but I think it was 09 that I started writing for you guys. That could very well be. And I knew of you, I think, before you knew me because you had designed websites for a number of friends. And then I think I sought you out. And or... I'm a legend. Yeah, no, a legend in your own mind. <laughs> exactly. In my living room. <laughs> yeah. And we've been sending business your way and, and we've been working together. You've been writing with us for us and it's been awesome. So yeah. today, we're going to try and help our listeners understand how to look at their own website dispassionately and assess whether or not it's time for them to make changes, right? Yeah, I love the idea of dispassionately. And, you know, the, the idea that that's even really possible is kind of fascinating and questionable. <laughs> I mean, I think before we dig into it, an interesting thing to do is to ask somebody else to yeah. complete tasks on your website and just watch over their shoulder while they do it. Yeah, I have some colleagues that I know when they do audits, they um, they don't actually even send them over. They'll do a video. And so they'll just walk through and create kind of a video screenshot of them talking through you know, their critique of the website, uh, which 
which seems a little more conversational and functional, but it's hard. It's like someone talking about your baby. I mean, I, I think it's a really useful exercise though. Like come up with one or two or three tasks, like find my website and right. uh, contact me and yes. learn more about whatever legal issue it is that you were likely to come for. And then, yeah, ask people to record their screen or watch over their shoulder. Yeah. It's super illuminating. So Yeah, and think of it more as this tool. You know, it should be functional. It should be a tool. Um, I have a lot of people who approach it as this art form. It really is not an art form. Like it should, you know, it's it's nice if it has some beautiful features and things like that, but that's very, not even secondary. It's, it should be functional. And so if you think of it more functional, it becomes a little more black and white and you tend to take the emotion out of it a little bit. We're going to dive into this from three angles, SEO, uh, search engine optimization, that is design and content. But before we do, you'll be able to download a short guide to all of these things, the information that we're talking about today. And you'll be able to find that at go.lawyerist.com slash podcast 171 go.lawyerist.com slash podcast 171. I'll repeat that at the end of the show, but that's where you'll find the materials for this episode. So Karin, how do we put our design hat, our SEO hat on first? And what do we think about from that perspective? So first, before you even get there, you need to go back to your firm's overall goals because none of this really matters. You know, some of these things are going to matter a lot more to different firms, depending on what your goals, your vision, your, who your ideal client is, you know, all of that stuff that we've talked about in all these other podcast um, episodes, all this stuff that you should have in place before you even get to this point and before you hopefully even started your website. So first you need to know what, what's your goal with this website? What, what's your vision? What's, what's that five and 10 year goal? Um, and then we need to think of that in terms of all of this other stuff, all of the SEO and the design and the content. So for example, for SEO, if you are personal injury and the amount of traffic and those numbers and all of that stuff is super important in order to meet your goals, then this is going to be a more important section than if you are estate planning attorney where it's much more relationship based and your ranking is important, but maybe not quite as important as your message and your conversion tactics and your content and the design and making sure that people feel a certain way. But but also like, I, I think you need to know what your goals are too, to help you clarify when, when it comes to ranking, what are you trying to rank for? I mean, like I know exactly. when I had a consumer rights practice, initially I set out thinking that I wanted to rank really well for Minnesota consumer rights lawyer, but literally no one in the history of the world has ever Googled that phrase. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what they Google Except is you. served Sam by Glover a debt collector. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, they Google, they Google Sam Glover for sure, but they also Google served by a debt collector, what to do next and okay. things like that. Yes. And, so like, what, what are the terms that are the things people are searching for? Right. Being number one for Minnesota family lawyer or Minnesota divorce lawyer isn't necessarily the thing to go for that people may Google that, but it may be impossible for you to rank for it. So you gotta, you gotta start with those goals of what are your keyword goals and the goals that tie to your ideal client, not mm -hmm. your goals. Right. And this comes back into the content and everything else. The website shouldn't be about you. That should be there and that's important. But the first thing it should be about is to make sure they know they're in the right place. So, you know, that they're, they're being heard, that you understand what their needs are, you know, all of that stuff. So start with your clients, make sure that you've got that right search term that you're ranking for, because like you're saying, if you're ranking for some search term that's 
irrelevant to your ideal clients, it's pointless. The whole exercise is, you know, moot. Is there a tool that you uh, would recommend for people to do an SEO audit? I mean, the, the wrong thing to do is just open up a browser tab and Google your firm because your browser knows who you are <laughs> and it will show you your website. So that's not effective. There are a few. We have our own that we use that does a more comprehensive search and you know, integrates it with ideal keywords for that particular firm. I mean, I would point people to moz.com. Yeah. But if nothing else, just use an open an incognito or private tab in your browser and search that way so that you yeah. shed most of the things that it knows about you. Yeah, I think that's a good recommendation. The main thing you're looking for in that SEO part of the audit is ranking, performance and security. So you want to make sure that you're ranking, especially if you're searching just for your firm name. So there should be a number of things you're searching for. Keywords, making sure that your firm just comes up if people have your name and they're searching for you or your firm name. But then also performance on your site. So is your site slow to load? Some of the technical stuff is kind of what falls under this SEO audit. Things that are going to affect the way Google feels about you. Slow to load, image heavy. What, what is slow? Because I have my own idea of what I think slow is, but I'm kind of a Nazi about page speed. So I'm wondering where somebody should start worrying. I would say a couple seconds. Mm -hmm. I've seen sites where people are like, it seems kind of slow and it's 10 or 15 seconds. And I'm gone. I, I'm on right. to the next thing. I, I think it matters more on a phone. Yeah. Because things yeah, are naturally going to load slower on a phone. And so you need to be considering that speed as well. Yeah, I wouldn't count to much more than two or three. If there's something else popping up in those first couple seconds and then you're at three or four, uh, it's on the border. But really, people are getting impatient at that point. There's so much you can do. There's, you know, so many different plugins and things that you can add that are going to smush all of those files and optimize it. So there's no reason for it to be that slow, unless you have a massive site like Lawyerist or something. You know, <laughs> I then... think we are faster than many of the websites in, in our best law firm websites competition. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for the record. For sure. um, but, I, my yeah. favorite tool is GT Metrics. That's G-T-M-E-T-R-I-X.com because it breaks down all of the different stages of loading and shows you where things are slow. Yeah. Yeah. And gives you some suggestions of what to do. Like yeah. you really need to do this first and then, yeah. And then security. I mean, this is one of those things that just keeps popping up and is getting a little old to talk about, but you have to have an SSL. Google is, you know, not being kind about that at all. You need to have that and it will affect your SEO. It will affect everything going forward. So. And, and moreover, it shows your clients that you actually care about maintaining confidentiality. I mean, I feel yeah. like I feel like having that green, you know, the, the lock icon show up in the taskbar with that HTTPS is a way of showing people, um, yeah, no, we actually take security seriously here. Um, and, and, and as you say, it's just, like we, yeah, we get it. We're, you know, like literally every up to date website has it now. Yeah. Well, and did you know that Avo does not provide it and has no plan in any time in the future to add it to their websites. I'm getting people, I'm getting clients this way where they've asked for an SSL. Hmm. And Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what that means. I know they're, they're in a, a different conversation for a different day. But yeah, I guess their future is unclear at this point anyway. But Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. But it is something that is absolutely necessary and is going to start to negatively impact your SEO ranking if it hasn't already. Oh, it already has. And, and so what we're talking about is the SSL certificate. Um, this is what puts that HTTPS up on your website. 
most people will need help setting it up. Um, I, I need help setting it up. I find that SSL certificates are full of voodoo and black magic, and I don't actually understand how they work properly. <laughs> um, and so you'll want help setting it up and making sure that it's correctly configured. I still don't know how we do it. I think the last time we renewed ours, I renewed it for the longest possible time so that I didn't have to worry about it for a long time. And then when you know, that five or 10 years is up, I will have to file a support ticket to get somebody to fix it for me. So, well, and just to give you, you know, another 10 seconds on the SSL, the the main question I get is I don't take credit card payments. I'm just a, you know, Joe Blow law firm. Why do I need that? Uh, do you have yeah. a contact form on your website? <laughs> well, just are you a WordPress website? Yeah. I mean, if you have a login, it needs to be secure. And this is my, this, this little spiel speech thing that I give probably four or five times a week, you know, WordPress is the biggest platform out there. So it's the biggest target. And so it's not about you. I mean, the hackers are not coming after you personally. It has nothing to do with you, your firm, any of that stuff. It's the fact that they can get into a WordPress login and they've just found a hole. So you just need to tighten all that stuff up, make sure that everything's there. And Here's the scare tactic I use with it too. I mean, if your site is hacked and it's blacklisted, I've had more than a handful of law firms that just don't do anything about it long enough. And I mean, a couple days that it blacklists their domain. They have problems sending emails. I mean, it's a huge problem. Your website is more than just your website. It's your, it ties into your domain and your emails and your whole communication with the outside world. So you got to get it secure. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And in a few minutes, we'll be back and we'll talk about your and my favorite part of websites, which is design. We'll be right back. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. LawPay. The legal environment is more competitive than ever, and small law firms are feeling the pinch. With over 1.3 million attorneys in the United States and counting, it can be hard to stand out from the crowd. That's why Spotlight Branding helps lawyers become unforgettable. Spotlight Branding is a different kind of internet marketing company. They don't put their clients on the SEO hamster wheel. They don't ask them to burn thousands of dollars on speculative pay-per-click advertising. Instead, they're focused on the fundamentals of legal marketing that have worked for centuries. They use the internet to build a premium brand for solo and small firm lawyers. They put systems in place to create top-of-mind awareness, allowing their clients to maximize referrals and repeat business. It's the smart way to grow your law firm. Learn more at spotlightbranding.com lawyerist. And if you're attending Lawyernomics and would like to know more, stop by Spotlight Branding's booth, mention this podcast to receive a special offer. If you've ever considered doing estate planning but think it's too dry and boring or have been afraid it might not earn you what you need because you have to compete against LegalZoom or the dreaded $1,500 estate plans, check out the website estateplanningrules.com to get a free guide that lays out step-by-step how some lawyers are regularly commanding average fees of four dollars to $5,000 per estate plan, and you'll discover why regular, everyday people are happy to pay well for estate planning services that you'll love to provide. That's estateplanningrules.com, brought to you by New Law Business Model, where you get to love being a lawyer again. Okay, Karin, let's talk about design. This is my favorite part. Where do we start? Ooh, we start by kind of rubbing our hands a little bit and getting excited. No, I totally <laughs> just did that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so 
So this is the visuals. This is the stuff where a lot of people start and then it's a failure because they haven't kind of done the background supporting foundation work, which is the stuff we already talked about. Knowing who your clients are, knowing what, knowing what their goals are, knowing why they're at your site so that you can tell them, yes, you're here, you're at the right place. And I know what your problems are and I can solve them. I'm the person for you. And then here's who I am. And this is why I can solve them, but not first. Here's who I am. Here's where I went to law school. Here's, you know, I'm kind of leading forward with my chest kind of puffed up and hire me now. It's the opposite. It's about them. It's explaining that you understand the solution to their problems. So visually, that's that's tricky. And that's why a lot of people don't do it, because putting up a visual picture of a city skyline at night or a gavel is a lot easier than finding an image that conveys compassion or advocacy or that you are in their corner, all of those ideas and concepts are a little bit harder. But when you get when you nail it, those are the sites that win the best law firm website contests. I mean, that those are the sites you land on. You're like, oh, this is cool. This is nice. I, well, and I, I can always tell that I start losing people when I start talking about how to convey emotion with font choices. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but it's true, right? Like yeah. use a slab serif font if you want to convey aggression or, um, right. or you know, use a really high exit, you know, and as soon as I start saying those things, people are like, oh God, that's what, does that actually matter? So does that actually matter? Yeah. Remember a few years ago, we had this whole conversation on, on the website that, you know, got all these comments about whether you really even need a logo. Yeah, right. And the whole thing was just that this this is sort of all, you know, foo-foo, like whatever stuff that doesn't really have anything to do with, you know, the work at hand. And I'm a, I'm an important lawyer and I, you know, who cares about fonts and all this fancy, you know, colors? Well, when it comes down to is, yes, you're a lawyer, but you are, you have a business, you have bills, you are trying to make a living. And, and even if you are a lawyer that does some really, you know, fancy advocacy work, even if you are um, Amal Clooney and you, well, maybe not, she doesn't need money. <laughs> so that's a bad example. <laughs> so let's say you do some kind of very highbrow work. You still need to get clients, you still have something that needs to happen on your website. You need to either get clients, you need to get referrals, you need to convince people of something one way or the other. And there's too many surveys and things out there that talk about how brands take you to the next level that I'm not going to, you know, go down that road too long. Well, but I think it, I think it ties back to something you mentioned earlier, which is that you're, when somebody lands on your website, you want to help them recognize that they're in the right place. Yeah. And one of the ways you do that is by using colors, images, fonts, um, everything, uh, layout, white space, a language to convey to them the message you're trying to get across to them. Like my, my old website, I wanted it to look like a punk rock poster because I wanted people to feel like I was there to stick it to the man for them. Yeah. And people told me, why did you choose me? Well, you looked like somebody who'd stick it to the man. Well, I liked that your website looked right. like, you know, kind of a punk rock poster. And I was like, badass, like that worked. So. Right. So sometimes it's easier to use some examples and yeah. that's a perfect one. So you wouldn't have used 
soft yellows and pinks and like a cursive font that those all convey kind of warmth and softness and femininity. And, you know, that would be something that maybe an estate planning attorney or somebody who works with elders or people who have to be compassionate and caring might use. Your approach would look offensive. Black, white, and red, baby. <laughs> right. But it would look to those people who are looking for somebody who who really is like a shoulder to cry yes. on, your stuff would look harsh and it would look totally wrong. And so it's not just about, okay, let's go and be pretty and play with finger paints. It's about defining what your brand is and then getting all the pieces of that brand together so that it all reinforces that message at every interaction and touch point so that you don't have that disconnect of someone who is looking to you for a shoulder to cry in and they come to your site and it's harsh and punk rock and they're like, nope. that's not at all. <laughs> right. I mean, I think, yeah. I, you know, people are always asking me and I think lawyers fall into this because so much of what we do, it happens on black and white documents. And so it's hard to, right. we are so involved in substance that we have a hard time getting our heads around form mattering. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, one of the best conversations I ever had was with former Minnesota Supreme Court justice who his advice on advocacy was, he said, advocate with every part of your brief, advocate with the layout of the cover page, advocate with the word choices that you make in your table of contents. And I think, I think a part of that is advocate with your font choices, advocate with the colors on your website, because that, that's how you define who you are. And, And you have to do more than just say, you know, standoffishly, well, read the text and and find out where I went to law school and then you will certainly know. Right. Yeah. And I mean, there is, there are these moments where if you do things that just slightly set yourself apart, that's, you know, the main goal of marketing is to just be different, be memorable and having a unique font choice. And when people pick up their, their invoice or whatever it is, I've had people say that was the most beautiful invoice I've ever seen. I'm like, okay, come on, that's going a little far, but just the fact that it it was like enough for them to think, ooh, instead of just, okay, this is typical, it all goes in line with their whole experience. And then the last thing I was going to add is to benchmark all of this stuff against your competitors mm-hmm. and try to rise above, um, obviously. I mean, that's what everyone is trying to do. But when you go and just pick out Times New Roman, put your law firm name with your last name firm in Times New Roman and (laughs) put it at the top of a generic thing, you're making a choice to either step in line or really kind of fall behind your competitors. So make sure you are checking what's going on, knowing the whole marketplace and that your goal is to, you know, be what everyone else is aiming for. I just thought of a fun exercise. Maybe it's a dumb one. You can tell me. (laughs) Um, But it just occurred to me and I think it's awesome, which is like, go, go find your top 10 competitors, whether it's competitors based on keywords or the the firms that you know you want to beat for clients, whatever. Or even design inspiration. Well, I I would, for this specific one, I would say find the the lawyers that who's, that you're trying to beat. Okay. And, um, and print off the first page of, of their website, of every single one, the actual screen capture of it so that you're seeing it as you would on a monitor, paste them all up in a grid on a wall so that you've got 10 or 20 or 30 websites, front pages of a website, paste it up on a grid on the wall and now back up 30 feet and see if you can pick out yours. Oh, that's a good one. Isn't that good? I thought that was really good. It just (laughs) popped into my head. 
<laughs> like if it's not, if it doesn't stand out and hell do it in black and white, right? Cause people like me who are colorblind can't see it, all that other fancy shit you're doing with colors. Like, can you pick yours out? And if you can't, neither can your clients. Right. You're not memorable. Exactly. And even if you, you know, decide that you don't want to go and spend that five minutes, it should like implant that idea in mm-hmm. your head. Yeah. As you go through those 10, you should be able to close your eyes and, um, know that yours stands out significantly from all of those 10 that, you know, you just went through. Cause the reality is not everyone is going to hire you the first time they visit your website and, no. and you need to help them remember that they've found the right place again the next time they come back and just continue to drip. I mean, sometimes my, even, you know, I'm not in the same exact category, but for myself and my own website, sometimes my initial contact to the time of you know, conversion when they actually decide to work with me, that can be more than a year. So you have to have these consistent experiences through, you know, whatever your emails, your website, your social media, all of that stuff. So that all of that time between that initial contact to conversion is consistent, regular, and also, you know, on brand. I want to leave time for content, but there's an important piece of design that's even more about functionality and that's um, responsiveness or mobile friendliness or however you want to talk about it. Yeah. This is not a matter of looking pretty. This is a matter of function. 50% or more of the world or of the United States, let's say, uses smartphones as one of their primary internet devices. And if your website doesn't look good on one, you might as well not have one. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the SSL. You just got to do it. It's got to be good. It's, it has to be part of your website plan and design. I have some clients who are starting with that now, instead of starting with the desktop layout, they start with the Mm -hmm. mobile and then work backwards, which is, is a smart idea. I mean, oftentimes, depending on, you know, your firm and your practice area, I would say a lot of the times that will be your first impression. Someone gets your name, they're going to plop it in their phone and then they'll follow up later, maybe on their computer. If they're, yeah, maybe, you know, depending on your practice area, let's imagine you do criminal defense. It is for sure going to be on the phone Mm -hmm. they're not going to be, they may not even have a desktop. So yeah, it's absolutely non-optional. And I would say one of the things that drives me crazy is when somebody gives me a mobile website that doesn't let me do all of the things I can do on the full website. Right. That time has passed. It doesn't have to be built for mobile first, but it needs to be built for mobile also. And everything that you can do on a desktop, you should be able to do on a phone. I mean, it's, that's just fundamental. What's an example of something that you couldn't do on a mobile? Can you think of anything? I mean, we use uh, a product called HubSpot for um, our sort of marketing backend. Uh, We switched from MailChimp a little while ago. The list of things that I can't do on mobile is long and pisses me off regularly. (laughs) Oh, on the HubSpot website? Yeah. Like there there are big things on it that are totally unusable, even on an iPad, much less on my phone. That's um, really that, surprising. Yeah, and it just drives me nuts. And I, there are good reasons for it. It's a big, complicated thing. There, are, It has a lot of functions. Like, I'm not angry at them. I understand why. But, God, it makes me mad because I want to be able yeah. to use things on my phone all the time. And it drives yeah. me crazy. So I guess another thing that we should throw in on design is accessibility, I think. Yeah, that's bubbling up more and more. I think it's got to be the kind of thing where, like mobile, you build it in from the ground up. 
Yeah, it's still I'm seeing a lot of, you know, places where there's some conflict with like, well, I'm not going to get too technical. But anyway, it, it definitely needs to be considered mm-hmm. and considered to a certain point. There's a there's a point when it becomes more complicated than than some firms need. But yeah, what we're talking about is is essentially screen readers. So if somebody comes to your website and they are hearing impaired, hard of hearing, visual Yeah, or visually impaired. Are they going to be able to use your website? And I am colorblind in weird ways. And so if you have a line graph that uses color as the way to distinguish, you know, from one line to another, I will probably have a hard time figuring out what you're trying to show me. That's a good example. Yeah. I'm like, so figure something better out than, than just color or use really bold, obviously different colors or make it black and white. Right. But the same is true for people who are hearing impaired. They're going to be using, um, if you're going to have videos and things on your websites, consider whether you should subtitle them or have transcripts made. Yeah. If a podcast is the way you're going to market, how are you going to make sure that that's accessible to other people? People who are truly blind, not colorblind like me, are going to need to use a screen reader to browse your website. And so things like alt tags and menus need to be structured in a way that screen readers need them to be structured. You can actually just turn on a screen reader and listen to your website and hear how it sounds and it may open your eyes, which is a weird thing to say. (laughs) So I I think everybody can decide how long, how far down that path they want to go. Jess Birkin um, is one of our uh, one of our winners of the West Law Firm websites, and she recently decided to go all the way and try and make her website as accessible as she could. And she kind of details each of the stages. It, it's it's a good read and it's helpful. It's a really good read because I yeah. think um, that that's kind of where I was going a few minutes ago. But she kind of explains the different levels too. Mm-hmm. Like you know, here's the basic level. I went all the way, but I would at this point for most firms that I work with, you know, most of what she has in that basic basic level is better than what you're going to find on most sites to begin with. But um, it is a it's a perfect example of all the different options and how far you can go. And I think um, uh, the last thing I'll say about it, too, is there's huge overlap between um, on page SEO and basic uh, website accessibility, good practices. And so if you're if you're following good SEO, you will probably end up with a fairly accessible website. And if you're following uh, accessibility best practices, you're going to end up with a really well-optimized website. And so um, it bears benefits. There's a, there's a good argument to be made. I understand that um, websites are public accommodations and therefore must comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah. So this, this isn't necessarily just a, hey, a nice thing that you ought to do. It's probably something that you have to do. But also a fifth of Americans have some kind of a disability. And so if you want to cut your potential client base by 20%, go ahead and ignore accessibility. And that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> right. And I've worked with firms who who work with disabled people and they didn't have accessible sites. So, I mean, there's that. Well, that's just too. ridiculous. So, you know, right. So, I mean, there's, there's certain firms where it's really something that you should be leading with. I mean, a personal injury firm with an inaccessible website is just a silly right. thing for example. Right, exactly. Um, so let's talk about content though, because, okay. um, and let's talk about where do we start looking at content and figuring out if we need to start doing some work. So your content again should be functional. So the, the overarching phrase I use is just conversion optimization. So what are the things that you have that are going to get people through that path to do what you want them to do, whether it's call you, fill out your contact form, um, sign up for your email, you know, whatever your, your end goal is, 
what are the things that, that are in place to make that happen? So it should be, for example, noticeable phone number that is clickable on mobile, uh, primary call to action, as well as a secondary call to action. So if your primary call to action is a phone number, there's a good number of people that for sure are not going to do that on the first visit or two or three, uh, depending on wh who your clients are and all that. So if they don't do that, then what? You should have some plan in place for what your secondary call to action is. Is it a blog? Is it signing up for the blog or, you know, whatever that, that plan is. And then making sure you've got your unique selling proposition. You are unique and the right answer to your potential clients for fill in the blank. Lead capture forms and then making sure that your all of your copy, all of your headlines, your content align with your brand goals, as well as what you want them to do. Mm -hmm. Do you include like, should lawyers be blogging on their websites? Do you include that kind of content in what you should be doing as an audit? I mean, I guess fundamentally, if you have a button that says blog and, and I click on it and it says coming soon, you should just Ugh. delete that part of your website because that right. makes you look dumb. But, um, right. <laughs> but I mean, do you have thoughts on that? On whether they should have the blog? Uh, whether they should have it and in brief, what kinds of things they should be doing with it. In relation to the content audit. Mm -hmm. Well, it does depend, but you know, 90 plus percent of the time, a blog or, you know, whether you call it a blog, a news section, firm news, I don't really care. It's regularly updated content that is reinforcing your message, your keywords, improving your SEO and useful. So mm -hmm. if it's just blob of regurgitated, useless text that you're throwing out there for no real purpose other than, you know, your neighbor is doing it really silly. Like that <laughs> doesn't make any sense, <laughs> but it should be useful. It should be strategic. It should be, um, stuff that your users want to read, not just that the Google robots want to read. And so, yeah, I think it's the best thing you can do really to make sure that you've got that evergreen content that stays there, that isn't going to go away if your competitor increases their SEO budget. It's, you know, stuff that you have and you can hold on to long-term and build off of. I, I guess, uh, yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of lawyers think about their website as a place to help clients make the decision about whether or not to hire them. Yeah. Uh, but I would urge people to think um, earlier in the client journey. Um, think of your website as a place to provide information and assistance to people who are trying to figure out what to do about their legal problem. And yeah. when it comes to writing content, write helpful things. And Karin mentioned primary and secondary calls to action. Well, your primary one may be contact me, but maybe your second one is, you know what, here's a white paper where I really lay out what you should be thinking about when you're starting to think about divorce. Yeah. Because like somebody who's starting to think about divorce might be your client in three, six, 12, whatever months, but they aren't now. <laughs> They're not yeah. going to hire a lawyer now, but you can help them now. You can leave an impression on them now. You can get their email address now um, so that you can follow up later. So start thinking about uh, your website in terms of how can I help people who are at any point in that client process and provide resources so that, you know, later on they're like, Oh, I need to do some, so, you know, they, I saw something on that website and now I know I need to do X, Y, Z. Um, let me go back, you know, that, so that's the idea is to give them something that's going to pull them back. So provide resources and then position yourself as that expert so that whenever that divorce ends up, you know, coming down the, the road, then they're like, Oh, 
who was that divorce person? Hmm. Yeah, exactly. Get people around. I would say, um, too, if you are not yet familiar with the idea of inbound marketing, uh, get with the program because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is perfect for lawyers. It's a perfect way to think about marketing. I find that many lawyers are still thinking about marketing as more like advertising. Yeah. Um, they're just putting up billboards. They get they open a Twitter account and every tweet is, if you need a personal injury lawyer, hire the yeah. law firm of Smith, Smith & Smith. I have people ask me the difference between marketing and advertising all the time. Yeah. And, you know, advertising is obviously a subset of marketing, but advertising is also broadcast. It's just pushing your message in front of people. Right. Inbound is, let me help you. <laughs> yeah. Um, let me give you something valuable so that you remember who I am, so that you come back, so that, so that I get your email address, so that I can follow up with you. And it's meant to be done in a valuable, not icky way. And uh, it's a super valuable way for lawyers to be thinking about the way they're marketing. Unless you're one of those lawyers who really is just purely, I am trying to find a lawyer. That is the beginning and end of my transaction. And it's either going to be you or not. I don't just see that as the future in any way, shape or form though. But, and the, what you're describing is also this feeling that people have when they come to your site too. They either feel like they're walking into a used car dealership or they mm -hmm. feel like a breath of fresh air. And these kinds of websites, it's kind of sad, but they are a little more rare where it's the answer to the problem. It's the resource that's going to help you through and find that solution. And, you know, usually they'll, the, the user comes to that site and it feels nice and you're giving them, and that's that first impression, that feeling, that gut thing that, um, in those first three seconds, they're going to think, Oh, instead of, Ugh, okay, just another navy blue site with a picture of a gavel that tells me where they went to law school. It ties all the way back into that feeling that you're trying to leave them with. If you've been listening or if you download the materials, and I'll give you that link again in a moment, and you're thinking, well, shit, I need to get with the program and redesign my website, <laughs> you can go to lawyerist.com slash website assessment, all one word, lawyerist.com slash website assessment. We'll ask you some questions to help you figure out what you need and try and match you to a designer who can help you. If you want an audit like this, you can also just look up Karin. The materials will be available at go.lawyerist.com slash podcast. 171. That's go.lawyerist.com slash podcast 171. Karn, thanks so much for sitting and chatting about websites and design, which uh, you and I could be geeking out on uh, for hours. <laughs> All but, day long. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think we did a pretty good job shoving, uh, compressing useful information into a little over half an hour. Yeah. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh,